Good evening, uh, brothers and sisters, uh, friends, family, uh, youth and little ones. Uh, it's a wonderful privilege to share God's good news with you this evening. Preparing for tonight uh, has provided me the opportunity to wrestle with the text, uh, to be wounded and humbled by it, and then to be healed and encouraged by applying the sweet balm of the gospel. My hope is that uh, God would be pleased to work similarly in every heart tonight. Would you pray for this with me? Father, we come to you tonight needy for hope, needy for your Savior, needy for you. Please use the words of my mouth to clearly proclaim your gospel truth, and please grant your Holy Spirit to open the eyes and ears and hearts of everyone in this place. In the name of Christ, our King, we pray. Amen. Uh, if you've not already done so, uh, please turn your Bibles to our text for this evening, Luke chapter 9, verses 61 through 62. If you're using the Pew Bibles, you can turn to page 868. And while you turn there, let me note that you will likely find these verses under a section heading titled, The Cost of Following Jesus. This heading and others like it in our Bibles are not original to the text, but are added by very learned and wise believers in order to aid our understanding and orient our reading. After wrestling with this text over the past weeks, I certainly see the usefulness to this heading. Christ's word in this, uh, words in this section uh, of the text can certainly provide a picture and application of the cost of discipleship. His words are certainly no less than that. However, they must also, and perhaps principally, be read in the broader context of Luke's gospel account as well as the greater gospel narrative of the entire Bible. When we do this, there is a sense in which Jesus' words principally point not to the cost uh, that we pay for discipleship, but to the price that only he could pay to make disciples. This is the approach that, I, uh, that we'll take tonight as we consider the gospel's message in three points. One, man is unfit for God's kingdom. Two, King Jesus makes people fit for his kingdom, or makes his people fit for his kingdom. And three, follow your king home. Let's now consider this first point. Man is unfit for God's kingdom. And as we do, please follow along as I read uh, chapter 9, uh, verse 61 and 62 of Luke. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. If you were here this morning uh, for Pastor Mike's sermon, or otherwise familiar with the scriptures, uh, you may note that this exchange harkens back to the call of the prophet Elisha in 1 Kings chapter 19. We will look at that connection in our second point. But we should first note how this text ultimately harkens back to the beginning of the Bible, as all do. To the book of Genesis and to our first parents, Adam and Eve. You see, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and all things in them in the span of six days. On that sixth day, he created Adam and Eve. He created them in his own image, male and female, he created them. And he placed them in a garden paradise where we read in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, that God blessed them and gave them 
command as his vice regents to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over all other creation. God essentially told them to establish a kingdom that would flourish through the procreation, procreation of a people and the cultivation of a broader civilization. Adam and Eve sadly failed in this task. Instead, they joined the serpent Satan's rebellion against God's sovereign and righteous rule. They truly looked away and fully removed their hands from the proverbial plow of their God-given ministry. Their participation in the rebellion separated them from God and enslaved them to Satan and to the curse of death, both spiritually and physically. Because of this, the holy and just God justly declared Adam and Eve unfit for his kingdom and removed them from the garden. The true and bad news for us is that Adam and Eve passed on the rebellion to all mankind. Through them, we've all inherited an innate unfitness for the kingdom of God. But there was also good news. Before he removed them from the garden paradise, the would-be garden kingdom, God gave Adam and Eve a promise for redemption. We find this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. There, in God's curse of the serpent, he promised to put hostility between the seed of Satan and the seed of the woman. God vowed that a son of man would come to crush the serpent's head, thus crushing the power of sin and death and restoring man to right relationship with God. Though doing so would cost that son. The serpent would bruise his heel, providing the sacrifice that would save God's people. This promise of redemption for an unfit people brings us to our second point. King Jesus makes his people fit for his kingdom. As we consider this, let's pull back a bit in Luke's account of the gospel, beginning in verse 51 of chapter 9, in order to provide a greater context. Please join me as I read. When the days drew near for him, that's Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him, who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him, because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell, uh, tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back 
is fit for the kingdom of God. We see from verse 51 that by the time Jesus encounters and replies to these three men in verses 57 through 62, he has already set his face to go to Jerusalem. He has already committed his gaze to the coronation at Calvary, where he would take where he would be taken up on a cruel cross to die for the rebellion of his chosen people. As promised in Genesis 3:15, Jesus was the son who would offer his perfect sinless life as a sacrifice to make his king, his people fit for his kingdom. Can you imagine Jesus' determination and preoccupation as he responded to these three men? Try to imagine uh, the drama of how this scene is playing out. Christ's gaze is set firmly on the road before him, surrounded by many excited followers who incorrectly expected Jesus to enter Jerusalem and establish an earthly messianic kingdom. So everyone around him is excited, and as he's walking... In verse 57, we see the first man clamoring for his attention, vowing, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus' reply seems to imply, no, you cannot endure what I'm about to endure. Lest we imagine that any man could follow Jesus to Calvary. Let's consider Jesus' final sleepless and torturous hours in the Garden of Gethsemane before his arrest. There he prayed in agony without rest, Meanwhile, his closest disciples found ample space to rest their heads, unable to remain awake even for one hour to pray for him. How lonely he must have felt. Let's further consider the exhausting hours that followed as Jesus endured mockery, beatings, and false accusations before the Jewish council. He then bounced between the interrogations of Pilate and Herod, endured further mocking, vicious beatings, and then carried his heavy heavy cross to Calvary, where he endured hours of slow suffocation while nailed to the cross, all the while bearing the sins of all his people. No one could or would follow Jesus there. Even his closest friends had long abandoned and denied him. Next, in verse 59, the second man responds to Jesus' call to follow him by citing his need to first bury his father, a responsibility that by Jewish custom could require up to a year to fulfill. Jesus' reply made clear that that man was worrying about the wrong death. It was Jesus' life-giving death and burial that deserved attention. Nonetheless, neither this man nor one of Jesus' original disciples would attend to his burial. Instead, a stranger, a member of the Jewish council, who found righteousness in Jesus' cause, buried him. Finally, in verse 61, we see the third man, also clamoring for Jesus' attention. With a vow to follow him, if Jesus would just let him grant, uh, would just first grant him leave to say goodbye to his family whether intended or not. His caveated vow brings Jesus' mind to the call of the prophet Elisha by the prophet Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19. Jesus' response seems to make clear to the man, Elijah's prophetic ministry will not be fulfilled in your life, 
but in mine. The God-man Jesus, with hands firmly on the plow, is fit for the kingdom. This man is not, at least not yet. The larger context, the Luke's Gospel account, and the larger narrative of the Bible make clear that the story of Elisha's call to ministry does not foreshadow the life of this nameless man. Instead, Jesus' Jerusalem-pointed response makes clear that he, Jesus, the Messiah, is the new and better Elisha. Like he's the new and better Adam, the new and better Moses, the new and better Elijah. Like Elisha, Jesus' name points to his ministry of salvation. In Hebrew, Elisha means God saves. While Jesus, Yeshua, even more personally, means Yahweh saves. Elisha, the son of a wealthy landowner, abandoned the riches and comfort of his father's home to serve a humbling ministry to a wayward people. Likewise, and infinitely more profoundly, Jesus left the wealth and glory of God the Father in heaven to accomplish the ministry his Father gave him. Philippians 2, verses 6-8 through 8 reminds us that though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't hold on to it. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Brothers and sisters, this is good news for us to remember and rejoice in tonight. Like these nameless followers of Christ, we are, in and of ourselves, unfit for the kingdom of heaven. But praise our merciful God, because as the lovely old hymn, Come Ye Sinners, reminds us, all the fitness God requires is to feel your need of Him. In acknowledging our need, we have turned to God in repentance for our sin and demonstrated our faith that the blood of Christ and not our works is mighty to save. That said, I wonder, brothers and sisters, if any among us are struggling to find joy in these verses tonight. Instead of Christ's saving provision, are you tempted to see the verses as an indictment or worse, a death sentence? Are you grieved to realize that in your Christian walk, you too often fail to live up to your vow to follow Christ? Have your eyes too often strayed from the path plowed before us by Christ? Brothers and sisters, you're not alone and you're not without hope. As Pastor Mike reminded us often during this morning's sermon, God's people are often faithless, but God is always faithful. Remember that he knows your frame. He knows your dust. And it's he who provided his only son for you. If and when you are tempted to despair of your sin, I urge you, dear brothers and sisters, to earnestly repent and return to the truth of the gospel. Return, Christian, to the humbling truth that apart from Christ you are unfit for the God's kingdom. Return and hold fast to your one true hope that King Jesus shares his righteousness with you and all those who would ever repent from their sins and trust in him for salvation. And return and hold fast to the sure promise that Jesus will never leave you nor forsake you.
and that he is even now preparing for you and all his people a kingdom city, new Jerusalem, and drawing us homeward. And this is our final point. Follow your king home. At Calvary, King Jesus indeed accomplished the salvation that established a nation of sanctified people. Where Adam failed, Jesus, the new Adam, succeeded. And now he continues that mandate given at creation to build a beautiful, perfect, and everlasting kingdom. Consider Jesus' tender exhortation and guarantee to his disciples from John's account of the gospel. In chapter 14, verse 1 through 3, we read, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. We know where this story ends. At the close of the Bible in Revelation 21, we are given a glimpse of what awaits. There we read, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Christian, as Jesus firmly set his face to Jerusalem, so you must set your face to New Jerusalem. No doubt the cost of following Jesus is high, and at times may feel unbearable. But remember that at Calvary, Jesus took the punishment that you deserve. While his cross-laden journey led to the wrath of God on your behalf, the cross you now bear is leading you to God's beautiful face and ever-loving one. In just a few moments, we will sing the hymn, I have decided to follow Jesus. And in the third verse, we'll proclaim, My cross I'll carry till I see Jesus. My cross I'll carry till I see Jesus. My cross I'll carry till I see Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Christian, make this vow your own. Please pray with me. Father, again we tell you that we come here needy for you. Needy for your grace, needy for your love, needy for your Savior, needy for you. Father, remind us of this daily. 
and remind us of the cost Christ paid to make us fit for your kingdom and strengthen us to carry our cross daily and follow you joyfully until the day we see you face to face in glory. In Christ's name, amen.